All right, good morning, everyone. It is great to see you here this morning. Welcome back, some of you who have been gone for a while. Anyway, if you don't know me, my name is Karen Miller, and I'm on the teaching team here, and I'm also on staff here at COB. It is my privilege to end our series on dependence this morning. So far, we learned uh, why we should pray, what is prayer, how we should pray, who we should pray to and who we should pray for. And then Laura, last we talked about where to pray. So here is my question. How are we doing? How are you doing? Are you growing in your dependence on prayer? Are you growing in how often you pray and in the different ways that you pray? If your answer is yes, then I also hope you see God moving in your heart bringing joy and seeing God move in different areas of your life. If your answer is no, that's okay. All right, I do not want you to feel guilty. People often feel guilty knowing they should pray more, but don't. And maybe you even try. You know, you pray that prayer and you're in 30 seconds in and all of a sudden you're thinking about a work issue or your to-do list or whatever, right? And you've completely lost it. So if I just described you, don't get down on yourself. Okay, instead, I want you to ask yourself a question. Here it is. Do I trust that my heavenly Father and the God Almighty loves me and can powerfully intervene in my life for my good and the good of others and for God's glory? If you are struggling to pray, I just want to encourage you to get to know God better through his word. All right, well, this morning we're going to talk about when to pray. All right, when I was a kid, uh, I learned to pray before meals, especially dinner. All right, so just show of hands, how many of you actually prayed before meals growing up? Okay, a lot of you, but not all of you. All right, in our family, we prayed the same prayer every night, and it went like this, for our foods, for our friends, for loving care, we thank our Heavenly Father, amen. And then later we added, shake a lot of love. All right. And we have prayed that prayer, uh, but we obviously, with our own family, pray many different kinds of prayers. And I also prayed at night before going to bed. And again, for me, it was the same prayer every night. And I grew up in a Presbyterian church where every Sunday we stood up and we said the Lord's Prayer. Now, when you do that every Sunday, it became a little bit rote, and I probably wasn't really paying attention to the words, but it also helped me to memorize the Lord's Prayer, which has become a pattern for how I pray every single day. So, since our topic is, when do we pray? One of the obvious answers is, guess what? When we're in church. That's a good idea, right? So this morning, I thought it'd be nice if we prayed the Lord's Prayer together. Okay, before we do that, I want you to remember it's called the Lord's Prayer because when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, notice you have to learn how to pray, it just doesn't happen. Uh, he said, this is how you should pray. This is a pattern of prayer. So as we do this, I want you to think about the words and what you are praying for. So please stand if you are able, and you're going to say the Lord's Prayer together out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Please have a seat. Thank you. Now in my church, it always ended, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, and that's a great way to end a prayer. Turns out that's not in the Bible. That's actually just liturgical tradition. So my whole early life, I prayed before dinner, before bed, and at church. And those are great times to pray, but there's more. Laura shared this verse last week. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says this, Rejoice always. Pray continually. Uh, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, that word uh, continually means literally constantly, without ceasing, literally at all times. Okay, that's a super high bar, right? And you can either throw your hands up and give up, or you can go, okay, that's the bar. I'm over here. I want to move, right, this direction. Ephesians 6.18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. All right. How do we move from praying, maybe before meals and bedtime, to praying without ceasing? So that's our driving question this morning and the one we are going to attempt to answer. All right, when I was a relatively new Christian, I knew maybe that I should pray, but I didn't really know how to pray. I'm not even sure I'd say I was motivated to pray. Um, So the more I thought about this, the more I realized that learning to pray really isn't that much different than learning how to read. Looking around the room, some of you are parents with little kids, so you're teaching your kids this kind of stuff, right? Um, Before you ever read your first word, More likely or not, your parent or others have been reading to you for years. So hopefully, up there's a picture of Mike and Calvin um, when he was little, and Mike's reading to Calvin, right? So you take in the language, the words, and by the time you actually start reading at four or five or six, uh, you have a spoken oral vocabulary of about 3,500 words, give or take, all right? And of course, you can, it's a little dark, but you can see Calvin and Naomi, they're a little bit older, reading together on the couch. Isn't that cute? That's cute. All right. Um, so, uh, learning to pray isn't that much different than learning how to read. All right. The more you hear others pray well and read the prayers of the Bible, the more you understand not just when to pray, but how to pray in different situations. You've been given the examples, the words, and the vocabulary of prayer. So learning how to pray actually first means listening to the prayers of others. So parents, guess what? You have a great opportunity to how to model different kinds of prayers in different kinds of situations for your children. All right, well, last week, Laura talked about the discipline of prayer, and I really appreciated that that we should be praying even when we don't feel like it or when we don't feel particularly close to God. And then Mike uh, this week sent me a podcast uh, with a panel discussion on how to strengthen your prayer life. The speaker, Colin Smith, found that many people describe their prayer life as irregular, 
and aimless. I'm not, don't raise your hand, but how many of you would describe your prayer life like that? Just think it in your head. All right, so Kevin DeYoung, one of the panelists, suggests that to develop a deeper prayer life, you need a time, a place, and a plan. Okay, should be up there on the screen. A time, a place, and a plan. Now, finding a time can be tricky with our busy lives, but I'm going to challenge you this morning to find a time to pray. Maybe it's just five minutes a day and actually put it on your calendar. Okay, right now you should be thinking, oh, I wonder when I'm going to be praying this next week. Uh, For me, I like to pray in the shower. That's something I do every day or during the school year as I drive to school, also a daily thing. Uh, I'm off break uh, because I'm a teacher and it's summer. I love to walk and pray. I love to swim and pray. Each two laps is a different person. Um, And then as I go about my day, different things come in, right? I get a text, something happens, right? And I pray for myself or others. If you're a person who gets easily distracted, and that includes me, it can be really helpful to write out your prayers, right? Or pray with another person. And Ruth... um, told us about her beautiful routine of journaling and prayer and how she did that. Okay, let's say you have a time to pray, but that in itself can still be, lead to really aimless and distracted prayer. All right, so having a plan can be helpful. All right, here's just a few kinds of prayer plans, super practical. Mike told us that reading the Psalms, maybe one a day, and then praying through it, That's a great plan, right? And guess what? We're going to study the Psalms in the fall in our community groups. I am super excited about that. Uh, Recently, a friend told me about a prayer app called PrayerMate. So I thought I would try it out. I'm not sure if it's for everyone. There should be a slide about that. But I found they have lots of biblical prayers, and then you can make lists, and it'll pop people up. And so that would be my prayer session for the day. And so I've been doing that as I walk. Um, It's been really encouraging me to pray in kind of different ways. So that's helped. Uh, Some of the pastors on that prayer panel mentioned like having something you pray for each day. So Monday, they pray for their family. Tuesday is elders. Wednesday is staff. Thursday is sermon. Right, you get the idea. There are lots of different plans. The important thing is you actually think about it and have one. All right. We saw Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, setting aside time specifically for prayer and times of God. He got up early in the morning while it was still dark to pray. At one point, we know he prayed through the whole night. But we also see him praying as he goes about his day. Both practices are important. Setting aside that time and then praying as you live out your day. All right, but there's still another way we can learn when to pray and move towards greater dependence on God. So here it is. As you read the Bible, notice when people pray, notice how they pray, and notice the outcome. And then notice when people don't pray and notice the outcome. So we're actually going to spend the rest of our morning doing just that. I decided to look at 1 Samuel to see what we can learn about when to pray. Now, I do want to say with the caveat, learning when and how to pray is a lifetime endeavor. So what we learned this morning, it doesn't cover all the times we should pray, right? But it is a process for learning how and when to pray. All right, and before we jump into 1 Samuel, I just want to mention 
that during our final worship time, we haven't done this in a long time, but we're going to have leaders uh, in the four corners of the room. And if you need prayer, which honestly is everyone in the room, um, I want to encourage you to humbly and courageously get up and go to one of those uh, people around the room and ask for prayer. It's such a blessing to have that in our life. So just as we go through, if something strikes you, kind of file that away for that time. All right, since we're in 1 Samuel, just quick thing, we're at the end of the time of Judges and Israel's history. So they've already um, you know, gone across the Red Sea, taken the Promised Land, we've gone through Joshua. And in, at the end of the time of Judges, not a good time. People are doing what is right in their own eyes. And we're going to find out our main character, Samuel, he's the last judge as they transition to having a king. Okay, but the story of Hannah is where we start. Okay, so we're going to start with her story. Now, her family is honestly a mess. There, she's one of two wives. The other wife, Peninnah, has children, lots of them, but Hannah has none. And year after year, Peninnah would like provoke her and irritate her, and so much that she would weep and she would not eat. And this is, you know, this is mild, like, teasing irritation. This is the stuff that goes to the heart and just brings great hardship into Hannah's life. And she goes to the temple to pray. 1 Samuel 1:10. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Now the priest Eli saw her praying and actually thought she was drunk. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. When do we pray? When we are in deep anguish and grief. When our families are not what we would like them to be. When others are annoying us or provoking us or irritating us. When we have unmet longings in our heart. Now, over the last several weeks, people have talked about how often we pray in crisis, and we should. And honestly, we learn how to pray in crisis because we have a greater need, and we can pour out our soul to the Lord. Now, I don't recommend making a vow like Hannah did. Jesus warns us about making vows in Matthew 5.34. And if you're not sure how to pray in crisis or grief or disappointment or fear, you can turn to the Psalms of Lament that Mike mentioned a few weeks ago. He talked about Psalm 13. There's also Psalm 6, Psalm 25, 31, 38, 42, and 43, and 86. Okay, they're actually more than that, but that would get you started. And just pray through those prayers and start to learn how to pray those kind of lament prayers. Psalms of lament are songs and poems in which the psalmist cries out to God in times of deep distress and despair. In the Psalms of Lament, the psalmist asks God for intervention to deliver him from suffering, sorrow, great loss, failures, and enemies. These petitions often give way, this is the best part, to expressions of trust in God to act in the psalmist's favor, leading to hope and joy. Isn't that cool? 
at the end you win and with hope and joy. Now, most of David's prayers, his early prayers especially, are in hardship and crisis. And his prayers were often prayers of deliverance. We know that Jesus also prayed during times of crisis, right? In the garden before he faced the cross, his prayer was a prayer of request, but also of surrender. We'll get back to that in a, sec in a second. But there's this tension in prayer, right? Philippians 4, 6, which Laura talked about, tells us, make our requests known to God. Be anxious for nothing, but make your requests known to God with thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you're in this. And then James 4, 2 through 3 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, though, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Okay? Ask, but ask with thanksgiving. Ask, but check your motives. Okay? And then as throughout this series, we've been hearing that prayer is aligning our hearts with God's will. And that is true as well. So, here's my question. Can I ask for what I want? Was it okay for Hannah to ask for a son? I mean, what if that wasn't in God's will? Well, here's the short answer. The short answer is yes, you can ask for what you want as long as you, that you trust that if what you want is, isn't actually what you need or what is best for you, then there's no greater grace than God's no. So we ask knowing the God, that God may say no or wait. Or maybe. So Jesus models this in the garden before his death. Um, we've heard this before, but I want to make a specific point. Luke 22, 42 through 46. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. That's the request. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That's the surrender. And then it says an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples. He found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. All right, listen up. In times of crisis, we have choices, right? The, ch the disciples chose to sleep. Jesus chose to pray. We can choose to sleep or escape or distract or be angry or feel anxious. Or we can follow Hannah's and Jesus' example and depend on God through prayer. What are you going through right now? Or what are the unmet longings of your heart? And have you cried out to God about those things? At the end of Hannah's prayer, we learn that she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Honestly, this is my favorite part. I love that her face was no longer downcast. Before she knew how God would answer, she was changed because she cried out to God and she entrusted those things on her heart to God. Prayer should change us. All right, for those of you who like closure, I being one of them, here's how God answered Hannah's prayer. Now God heard her prayer and granted her the grace of a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. 
After Samuel was weaned, she went up to the temple to tell the priest Eli. She told Eli, I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. He will, she's going to go home. He's going to stay at the temple with Eli his whole life. So guess what? She's giving up her one and only son, not knowing if she will have more children. Now, that should be a foreshadowing of something else. Um, and then she prays. She gives up her son, and then she prays. Not, Lord, help me to have more children, or comfort me as I leave my son here. That would be for sure how I would pray. But here's how she prays. Learn from her. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. Her security is in God alone. When does Hannah pray and praise God? When her prayers are answered. Praying and thanking God for answered prayer is a great time to pray. When does Hannah also pray? In moments of surrender and sacrifice. How does she pray? She praises God's character. She rejoices in God's character. All right, next up we have the story of Samuel. And this uh, story is recorded in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3. Verse 4, then the Lord called to Samuel, and Samuel answered him. So Samuel's young at this point. Here I am. And he ran to Eli, who's taking care of him. He said, here I am. You called me. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet re been revealed to him. Well, this happened a second time and a third time, and Eli realized that the Lord was calling Samuel. Hmm. God initiated the conversation. God spoke to Samuel about Eli and, sadly, the judgment to come on his family because Eli's sons had defiled the house of the Lord, taken bribes, and slept with the women who served at God's house. What do we learn from this? Oh, guess what? We are not Samuel. We are not a chosen prophet or judge in Old Testament times. But what struck me is this that we are often inspired to pray as we read God's word and God puts something on our hearts. He's initiating. Reading the word brings to mind a person or a situation or my family or church family. And if I'm not in a rush and obedient, then I pray for those things. When do we pray? When God inspires prayer as we read his word. Okay, next up is the story of the Israelites. This is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4. All right, in that chapter, the Israelites go out to fight the Philistines. And they're the kind of arch rivals at this time. So they go out to find them, and the Israelites were defeated, and they lost about 4,000 men. So here's their response. It says, when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Okay, so they're in a battle. They don't pray. They're defeated. They don't pray, but instead return, kind of turn to religious activity. Uh, 
and kind of make up their own thing, right? The ark was to remain in the tent of meaning. It was never meant to represent God on the battlefield. Okay, there's a lot more to this story, but in the end, 30,000 more men die. The ark is captured by the Philistines, and Eli, the priest, and his sons die. That's not a good ending. All right. Now, I'm not in the military. I'm guessing most of you are not in the military, and I'm not going to get in a physical battle anytime soon. But we all, at times, have spiritual battles, mental battles, and emotional battles. Someone asked me a few months ago, when do you pray the most? And my immediate thought was, when I'm tempted to think uh, wrongly or negatively, when I'm tempted to uh, struggle to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, when I'm anxious or fearful or judgmental, right? I'm in my head and those thoughts are spiraling downward leading to anger or resentment or discouragement or hopelessness. When that happens, we can begin to battle in prayer. For 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says this, listen carefully, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Notice that Paul is talking about battles in our thinking. Okay, let me give you a couple examples. Maybe one you'll relate with. So let's say someone's made your life difficult. They've said something that hurt you or, or whatever it is and you are stewing about that situation, and you're going on this nice mental rant, maybe you're judging them or condemning them or just feeling hurt by them, right? And you indulge that kind of thinking without even realizing it for a good long while. And sometimes when I'm in that space without even realizing it, I'm kind of making myself feel superior because they're doing this mean thing and I'm all good, right? But then, you know, verse uh, that comes to mind, Ruth mentioned it, pops into your head. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who hurt you. Guess what? God is inviting you to shift gears. Okay? You have your flesh or your sinful nature and you have the spirit and they are now in battle. Galatians 5.17 tells us, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. You're not to think whatever you want. Okay, so you have this line of thinking. You're spiraling down, um, and you begin to pray. Lord, help me to love this person. Help me to forgive this person. Help me to see this person through your eyes. Help me to realize I'm just as sinful and in need of grace. Give me wisdom on how to respond. Forgive me for judging and condemning this person. May I walk in your spirit. And after praying, guess what? Well, usually for me, I go back to rant. <laughs> you know, wrong thinking, pray a little more. Like it's a back and forth, right? But after praying, there's now a chance that that person who made your life difficult, who hurt you, will experience the love of Christ through you. And that can matter eternally. It's important. Okay, second example. Maybe you wake up feeling anxious. 
You're not exactly sure, but there's a general sense of fear or dread or sadness kind of clouding your day. So you pray, Lord, you say that I can cast my anxieties on you because you care for me. I'm not sure why I'm anxious, but I ask that, I would bring, that you would bring clarity what is going on in my heart and mind. Thank you for being my deliverer. Deliver me from all fear. And though my life seems uncertain right now, you go ahead of me and can guide my steps. Help me to trust and follow you. I was reading this this morning, and I just started crying because I realized God brought something to mind that I didn't even know was there. And um, it was beautiful. Help me to trust and follow you. Those are the kinds of daily battles we face where we need to depend on God. What mental or emotional battles do you tend to face? And how can you depend on God to help you take every thought captive? When should we pray? When we are tempted to indulge the flesh, when we are in battle and spiraling down with anxiety or fear or resentment or discouragement. Like the Israelites, if we rely on ourselves, we're pretty good at self-reliance or religious activity, guess what? It's going to go badly. But here's the good news. The Israelites learned their lessons, and I have to keep learning this lesson. For Samuel 7, 8 through 9, they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Yay, they're learning to depend on God. So Samuel prays, and here's what happens. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. So it looks like there's going to be a battle, but that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. So the Philistines were subdued and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's life, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. A simple act of prayer lasted a generation or two. All right. Our next lesson comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is the story of the Israelites' misguided request. Now Samuel grew up to become a great leader and a prophet, and the people enjoyed peace while he was their judge, and God was their king. Okay, unfortunately, the Israelites didn't uh, want God as their king. They wanted a king that looked like the other nations who would go out before them and fight their battles for them. They wanted to look like everybody else. Sometimes we want to look like everybody else. So this is what they said to Samuel. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Okay, this should scare us. They asked for something that was not good for them. And God said, yes, they're going to experience the consequences of that. Okay, we want to be careful what we ask for. Um, but I do love that first Samuel's first and immediate response was to pray. So when should we pray? That's our obvious answer to question for the day. Guess what? When people are asking us for things. When we need to make a decision. When others sin and we need to respond. Okay, I'm an eighth grade teacher. In my job, people ask for 
things all the time. Parents want a different math placement. Teachers want me to lobby for them with the district. My principal wants me to take on this role or that role. Uh, students ask for extension, change of grade, time to tutor. Um, and, you know, the list kind of goes on. So perhaps in your work or ministry, people also often ask you for things. Or if you are a parent, I am sure your kids are asking you for stuff. Are we praying? Are we listening to God? Are we asking for wisdom? Because guess what? If I say yes to maybe this new role at my school, I'm inadvertently saying no to ministry that God has for me. Right? If I make a quick decision where my family is concerned, I'm most likely going to make a poor decision. Okay, back to 1 Samuel. God grants the Israelites their request for a king, but it comes with a cost. Listen carefully. When that day comes, when they get their king, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. They want relief from the king they've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Okay, Laura told us last week that we don't need to clean ourselves up to come to God, and that is true. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, we are told we can boldly approach the throne of grace to go to God in prayer. But there's a flip side. A lack of righteousness is a barrier to effective prayer. In fact, the psalmist tells us, 66.18, if my thoughts had been sinful, he would have refused to hear me. We can actually block the answer God has for our prayers by the sin in our lives. The good news is the answer to overcoming this barrier is clear. Repent. When we acknowledge our sin and agree with God and repent, right? Then he forgives us. Then there will be no longer be a barrier standing in the way of God hearing and answering our prayers. When should we pray? When we've agreed with God about the sin in our lives. And as we confess and repent and turn back to God in our hearts. Remember, confession is an important part of our prayer life, right? It's in the Lord's Prayer. All right, last thing. When Samuel was old and ready to step down from leading the people, he gave a farewell speech. Towards the end, he charges them to keep following the Lord and don't turn to idols. And then he says this. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. It's a short couple of verses, but very instructive. When should we pray? Guess what? When we've been entrusted with the care of others. That's not just our... our kids, but in our ministries, or if we're in work and we're over people, right? Paul models this kind of praying as well. First uh, Thessalonians 1-2, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Colossians 1-9, for this reason, since that day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So apparently... Prayers for those entrusted to Paul fill up much of Paul's prayer time. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my sister came out to visit, and we went to Monterey for three days. On the last day, we decided to spend a good chunk of our day in prayer for our kids. 
So we'd walk to a beautiful beach looking out at the ocean, and we'd talk about one of our kids, and then we'd spend a good long while praying for that child. They're all young adults at this point. Then we moved to another beautiful location and prayed for the next, and we continued until we prayed for collectively all five of our kids. And the cool thing, just a couple days after my sister got back, she started texting me, hashtag answered prayer, um, kind of continually. It's like so cool to see that happen. And you know, that's, that's the cool thing about prayer is that God loves us and moves in our lives. And it just makes me worship. So as we learn to turn to God more frequently and depend on him more regularly, we also get to see the goodness of God in action in the day-to-day. And guess what? That builds our faith and helps us to trust him more deeply. Let's pray. Pray with me. God, I thank you that through Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, that our sins are forgiven, that he made a way for us to have a relationship with you, and we have access and privilege to you as our Heavenly Father, to come to you in prayer knowing that you love us and care about us and are powerful and can move in our lives. Forget of us for not for taking you for granted, for not um, taking advantage of this beautiful relationship that we have of you. And I pray, God, that we would grow in dependence on you and that we would see the beauty and the joy of relying on you rather than relying on ourselves. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.